Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Tonight, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, um, I want to begin and frame our conversation by looking at uh, what I believe to be a very important um, and uniquely Christian uh, command that Paul gives in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 13. And it is practice hospitality. In Romans chapter uh, 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 chapters 1 through 11, um, Paul is developing theology, okay? Paul is just doing uh, what we would call theology. It's this big picture stuff. Um, He's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about how uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not just reconciled to God, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you're reconciled to God, you're also reconciled to one another. But then in chapter 12, Paul flips the switch. Uh, and he flips the switch with this word, therefore, okay? Therefore is always, if you're looking at one of Paul's letters, it's always a very important word, right? Because he's about to say, because of all these things I've told you, right? Because of all this theology I've done, because you are not just reconciled to God, but reconciled to each other as you're reconciled to God, you should live your life in this way, okay? And that's what happens uh, in Romans chapter 12. And Paul goes on this, uh, this really long diatribe on how we should live in light of the gospel. And then uh, in this diatribe, uh, we actually get a lot of language uh, in Romans chapter 12 that we use a lot um, in our kind of American Christianity, right? Uh, We want to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. That's Romans chapter 12. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Yet again, that's Romans chapter 12. In Christ, we, uh, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the other. Yet again, that's found in Romans chapter 12. But in the middle of all these really um, kind of flowery, beautiful uh, commands and language uh, that we like to use um, in our Christian culture in America is this uh, two-word sentence, this two-word command, practice hospitality. Now, um, when I say uh, the word uh, hospitality, what comes to mind for you? Southern cooking. Southern cooking, or the phrase, right, Southern hospitality, right? Uh, this idea of you, like, uh, you know, a lot of, I've talked to a lot of people who are from either Illinois or from all over the place uh, coming to Ole Miss. And one of the things, they're like, oh, I just love the Southern hospitality, right? I think I've talked to Emma about that, right? Um, right, Southern hospitality. But when we think about Southern hospitality, uh, what we mostly think about are things like this idea of, like, this general niceness or hosting parties, or um, good manners, or being polite, or as Bella said, Southern cooking, right? This, this idea of cooking for other people. And, and uh, hear me when I say this, all those are good things. All of those are things that I am a, one, uh, a very grateful recipient of. However, when Paul uses the phrase, practice hospitality, he's pushing us beyond the idea of Southern hospitality. When Paul uses the phrase Southern, uh, uh, not Southern hospitality, practice hospitality, he's trying to push us to something beyond and greater than just our idea of Southern hospitality. The first reason this is the case is um, the word for practice in Greek would better be translated to chase after. All right, so when we think about hospitality, we tend to think about people coming to us right? But Paul's saying hospitality is something that is to be pursued. The best translation, it's like almost to hunt, right? It is to literally like a, like uh, you would imagine, like you're watching one of those like National Geographic videos, like a a cheetah 
like waiting on its prey and it's chasing after its prey. That's what we're supposed to do with hospitality. Okay, so it's not about people coming to us. It's something to be chased after. It's something we are pursuing. Secondly, uh, the word for hospitality is this, philoxenia. Now, why does this word sound familiar to you? Let's break it down. Philo, where do you know the word philo? Come on. Somebody, someone say it. Philosophy, right? Which philosophy means what? Blank of knowledge. Love. The love of knowledge. That's actually philo. It means love. So this is love. Philo means love. Now, why do you know the word or the phrase or the segment of a word? Xenia. Xena. Finish it. Say it. Xena. Phobia. Right? Do you hear what Paul's saying? Right? By the way, what is xenophobia? Fear of stranger. Phobia is fear. Xenia is stranger. So Paul here is are saying, you need to have love of stranger. You need to chase after love of stranger. In a world that, as many people say, is often defined by xenophobia. And there can be debate on whether that's true or not. But I mean... There's some of that in our culture, right? At least you have to admit, on some level, there's some xenophobia in our culture. In a culture that's often defined by xenophobia, as Christians, we are called to a philoxenia, to chase after love of stranger, right? So the call of the Christian isn't just to love those who look like us and think like us and feel like us, right? It isn't to love those who share our values and our ethics and our priorities and our very culture, but rather it is to chase after the, uh, the love of people who don't share our ethics, to chase after the love of the people who don't share our values and who do not share our priorities and who do not uh, have the same culture as us at our own expense. That is the calling of the Christian. And tonight, um, we're going to be looking at how the early church did this, how the early church chased after love of stranger. And I just kind of want you to think about this on like a big picture scale, right? The question uh, that we're asking of the book of Acts as we journey through it is, how did this ragtag group of 120 people become the greatest social force in all of human history? Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 15, there were 120 followers of Jesus. And that group of people brought about a revolution of redemption that would see 2,000 years later, 2.5 billion people confessing Christ as Lord. How did that happen? They chased after love of stranger. They got out of their comfort zones and they crossed barriers for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, what we get to see are the very origins of that. In the book of Acts, we get to see the very first instances of Christians thinking about what that looked like for their lives and the life of the church. We get to see them grappling and struggling with, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us as a whole? And so tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to look at three different passages uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the story of Acts. And actually, we're going to extend all the way back to Luke some. Um, and um, 
we're going to do this quickly, I promise you. And then I just, I know, I mean, it's me, so I just, that might be hard to believe, but I, you know, trust me on this. Um, quicker than usual is maybe a good phrase we could use. Um, but I want to look quickly at three passages, and then I want us uh, to, to um, ask ourselves the question, all right, you know, how do we chart a course for? Right? What would it look like for us to cross barriers, to get out of our comfort zones for the sake of the gospel? And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you, uh, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be in verses uh, 16 through 21. Um, and, and just a quick question, why is this appropriate as we're talking about Acts to look at the book of Luke? The same author, right? Luke is both the author of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He's writing it to somebody, that he's, he's writing both of these books to somebody named Theophilus, right? Which actually means God lover, okay? The, theo, God, theology, um, and then Ophilus, you just get the philo in there, right? That's God, person who loves God. Okay, so, um, but it's a Greek name. Now, the uh, very important thing to know about Luke um, is that Luke is the only, uh, what we believe to be the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, okay? Every other person who writes a book of the New Testament was born a Jew, but Luke was not. He was born a Gentile, and he's writing to somebody with a Greek name. So another person who is also a Gentile. And so what we're going to talk about here tonight is deeply personal for Luke. What we're talking about tonight is not something that just happened on this like big picture scale, but this is, for Luke, this is how he became a Christian. So let's look at Luke chapter 4. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. These words that we're about to read are the very first words of Jesus preaching in the Gospel of Luke. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what... Uh, this passage is talking about that Jesus is reading is the kingdom of God. This is the coming of the kingdom of God. This is the day of the Lord. This is the moment in which God is going to set all things right under his rule. All right. This was the great hope of the Jews. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant and he sits down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, by the way, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your, in your hearing of it. In other words, by the way, I'm the person who's going to fulfill the promises that this passage is making. Now, if you're in the crowd, right, you are, you are probably like almost hoping against hope. You like are like, do I believe this guy? Is this real? Like, is this, is this actually happening? This is exciting, right? And some people are probably just like so oppressed and so um, put down by the Romans that they'll, they will fling themselves at anyone who claims to be the Messiah. And they're like, yes, let's follow this guy. This is exciting. This is great. This guy is going to restore Israel. That's what he just told us. This guy is going to overthrow our Roman oppressors, and he is going to restore Israel. However, the next thing that Jesus tells these people is he tells them two different stories from the Old Testament, one about the prophet Elijah and one about the prophet Elisha. And in both of these stories, 
The main point of them is that um, the blessings of God are not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And one of the stories, the second story about Elisha, is actually about um, how um, Elisha healed the prophet. Um, how, sorry, how, how the prophet Elisha healed a, a Syrian who was oppressing Israel. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them: Hey, by the way, I am the Messiah, and by the way. Um, I am going to bring the kingdom of God, but it's not just for you. It's also for the people who are oppressing you. Understandably, they get pretty mad at him. So pick up uh, in verse 28, right? All the people in the synagogue, this is their response. Jesus tells them these two stories, and this is their response. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. When Jesus tells them, hey, by the way, the kingdom of God is not just for you. It's for everyone in the world. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And the Gospel of Luke, the first time Jesus preaches, they try to kill him. <coughs> that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry, according to Luke, according to the Gentile believer. Do you see how this is personal for him? Then he closes out Jesus' ministry in his second book, Acts chapter 1, right? Jesus is having his final conversations with his disciples. They have now spent three years of ministry with him, in which they saw what he said in Luke chapter 4 come about over and over and over again. Jesus constantly interacting with people that uh, the Jews thought he shouldn't interact with. Jesus constantly trying to bring, bring the blessings of God to those who the Jews and the religious leaders thought he shouldn't be trying to bless. And so Jesus is having this final conversation with his disciples. And they're still missing the point that Jesus made over three years ago now. Right? Jesus was proclaiming the good news, not just for the Jews, but Gentiles as well, from the very beginning, according to Luke. And three years later, his disciples even though they have followed him for years and years at this point, they're still missing the point. This is our, uh, part of our text from last week, right? Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now when he says you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, what do you think they thought? What's going to come next? What would they link with the Holy Spirit? Also, too, remember that Jesus was just resurrected from the dead. So what are the, what are the things that the Israelites would link with the resurrection of the, of the dead and the coming of the Holy Spirit? Jesus, no, they, they wouldn't. Well, these particular ones would, but they wouldn't. The Jews would not. They would associate it with who, though? His title. The Messiah. And the Messiah brings about what? The kingdom of? Oh my goodness. The kingdom of? Oh my gosh, the kingdom of God. You know, I, just, I, need more, I need more energy. I just need more energy from you. Right? So the, the Jews would always relate the resurrection of the dead and the coming of the Holy Spirit with the kingdom of God. In other words, what Jesus is telling them, he is resurrected and he's talking about the coming Holy Spirit. So when his disciples hear this, the next thought is, oh my goodness, the kingdom of God. But look at the question that they ask. Look at the question that they ask next. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They've still missed the point, right? 
They still miss the point. They still think that the kingdom of God is not for Jews and Gentiles. They think the kingdom of God is for them and them alone. They still miss the point. Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they get that. They're like, okay, that's fine. And then Judea and Samaria, and that's when they're like, well, hey, we don't really like the Samarians. This isn't for them. This is for Israel. And then he says to the very ends of the earth. And when he says that, he's talking about the Roman Empire, the very people that are oppressing them. And that's when it gets harder, right? So think about this, right? How do you think Jesus' Jewish disciples felt about this, right? We, we know, like most of you are like at least familiar with the book of Acts on some level. And so you know how things play out. But right at this point in time, how do you think they would react to Jesus telling them this? How do you think, for real? Probably upset. Upset? What else? Yeah. Some, some of the 12 would be upset, right? There's not right answers to this one. There were right answers to the last questions. I shouldn't have asked them. That's my bad. I think in looking at it, in looking at what they realize what their known world, they're thinking, how can we do this? Yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't it make sense, so right? Fine, I mean, for them, even in their known around the Mediterranean and all that, how can we get to all these people mm-hmm. before the coming of the kingdom? Yeah. How, how do we get it to all these known people? I mean, yeah. It's just they can't, they can't get on a plane, right? Yeah. And they don't. They get on boats, and it's, it's a mess. There's fun stories and acts about boats being a mess. So it's like overwhelming. They're possibly upset. What else? What, how, how else do we respond? You just said, are you restoring to the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, hey, by the way, this is for everybody. How do you respond? It's not fair. Not fair, right? Yeah, we were good Jews. We've done everything right. Well, we want to have eternal life. Yeah, right? Yes, that's exactly what they're thinking. A part of uh, Jesus' original uh, 12 disciples was someone named Simon the Zealot. Does anyone know what zealot means? Passionate. Passionate. So zeal, but does anyone know the original word? Didn't they go around killing Roman? Yes, a zealot was a Jewish assassin. They would go around a knife. Zealot, yeah, I knew it. it Oh, right. Oh, a zealot is a knife. It's a it's a it's a word for a knife. And zealots hid knives in their in their cloaks, and they would go around and they would kill uh, Roman officials. Imagine you're Simon the Zealot, and you hear Jesus say this. You're a little offended, aren't you? This is not fair, as Brandon said. I think at. um, at best, right, there's some hesitancy, there's some confusion, there's some like, hey, wait a minute, Jesus. And at worst, there's probably some anger and some outrage and some hardening of the heart. But as we will study through the book of Acts, they slowly get it. But it takes time. And it particularly takes time for one apostle in particular. And that is Peter. As Bella read for us just a bit ago, we see that in Acts chapter 11, it took a whole nother 10 chapters of the book of Acts for Peter to get this point. Peter 
was with Jesus in his three-year ministry. He was with Peter. Uh, he was with Peter was with Jesus at Luke chapter four when he made this original proclamation that the kingdom of God was not just for the Jews but the Gentiles as well. He was with Jesus um, when Jesus gave them this commission in Acts chapter one. And even then, Peter still needed a vision from God, a supernatural vision from God to get this point. And he argues with him, right? He, he doesn't even accept it in the moment. And then, the crazy thing is, by the time of Acts chapter 15, by the time of Acts chapter 15, Peter's already, so he starts eating with Gentiles, okay? Like that's what starts happening. He won't eat in the homes of Gentiles. He starts eating in the homes of Gentiles. By the time Acts 15 rolls around, Peter stops eating in the homes of Gentiles because the, uh, it's called the, the circumcision group or the Judaizers. Um, they uh, don't think that you should eat with Gentiles. They think that to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. And because these people came into the town he was, Antioch, Peter was like, oh, well, I'm just going to stop eating with Gentiles now. So even after Peter gets a vision and starts doing the right thing, he then stops doing it. And Paul gets really mad at him, right? The only appropriate phrase for this is that Paul gets pissed at Peter. Galatians is the letter in which Paul is the most angry. Uh, it's the, the letter with which I, I most relate to Paul because Paul is in full angst. Uh, they're like writers, uh, they're like people who study the language there. It's like very terse, very quick, very kind of sarcastic language. Uh, in Galatians, but here, here's a bit of Galatians, and he's talking about this confrontation that he has with Peter. He says, when Cephas, who is Peter, uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, because Peter rejected the vision that God gave him, he stood condemned because he wasn't willing to get out of his comfort zones and cross barriers for the sake of the gospel. Peter stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he, were afraid, he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. These are the people who thought you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Do you hear the anger in Paul's voice? Do you see how hard of a thing this is for us to get? As we reflect on these passages, I think there's two, there, there are two things I really want you to see. The first thing that I want you to see is that God has an amazing and wonderful and, and, and comprehensive desire to see his good news cross barriers and boundaries. All right, uh, if, if you stick around long enough, if you're younger, um, you, you'll hear me teach a series through all the different commissioning texts of Scripture, starting in Genesis 1, going all the way through uh, this one in, in Acts chapter 1. There's tons in the Old Testament. And one of the things that you'll see is that at the very heart of God is mission. At the very heart of God is this desire for his good news to reach not just his people, but every single person on the planet. All right, so that's the first thing I think we need to see is that God's desire for the gospel to cross every boundary and every barrier. But the second thing that I, I want you to see as we reflect on these passages is I want you to see yourself inside of these characters, the human characters of these stories, constantly struggling with how to get this, constantly struggling 
with what it means for us to get out of our comfort zones and cross barriers for the sake of the gospel, right? How often do we find ourselves just like the apostles, just like the crowds, just like Peter, not being the revolutionary people that God has called us to be? Because we are very cozy in our comfort zones, right? Like me and you, we, we like our comfort zones. They make us feel safe. They make us feel at ease. They make us feel confident and control. And if we're honest with ourselves, they make us feel understood. And so we build up boundaries to protect them at all cost, right? But as God's agents of revolution in this world, we have been called to get out of our comfort zones. We've been called to cross boundaries. We have been called to chase after love of stranger. And so for the rest of tonight, I just want to quickly look at, at a biblical pattern for crossing the barriers that is played out for us in the book of Acts. All right. And as we do this, I think we're going to see three things. The first thing we're going to see is that the gospel compels us to meet people on their own terms. The second thing we're going to see is that the gospel uh, compels us to, not, to deny ourselves for the sake of others. And the third thing that we're going to see is that the gospel compels us and calls us to bless those who hate us. All right, so let's start with the first. The gospel, it's not revolutionary people, all right. The gospel calls us to meet others on their own terms. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Um, the question I want you to ask yourself and to answer by the end of this is what is converted? All right, what is translated? Okay, when the day of Pentecost came. This is what Jesus was talking about in Acts chapter 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there uh, were staying in Jerusalem, God-bearing Jews from every nation under heaven. You hear that? Every nation. When they heard this, a sound, uh, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. <laughs> Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all, these, uh, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears our own native language? So my question for you is what is converted? What is translated? Is it people's ears or is it people's tongues? People's tongues, right? What is translated and what is converted is not people's ears. What is translated and what is converted is people's tongues. In other words, let me put it for you very clearly. The gospel does not compel the world to cross barriers for Christians. If that were the case, the ears would have been converted right? They would have been, the people hearing the message would have been changed. But that's not what happens, right? What happens is that the gospel goes out and the gospel meets them on their own terms, in their own language, in a way that they could understand. The gospel is the thing that crosses barriers for the sake of others. So hear this, the gospel does not compel the world to cross barriers for Christians, but for Christians to cross barriers for the sake of the world. But yet how often in our churches do we act as if the opposite is true? 
How often in the lives of us who call ourselves Christians do we act as if the opposite is true? We think that, yeah, oh, you know, someone comes up to me, maybe talks about faith, and maybe I'll talk about faith with them. But it is not the ears that are converted. It is the tongues. The call of the Christian is to cross barriers for the sake of others. Christianity does not ask the world to cross barriers for the sake of Christians. Think about in Acts chapter 11 and Paul's dispute with Peter. What was Peter not doing that he should have done? Going out, out, right? He wouldn't eat in the homes of Gentiles. That was the problem. Peter would not cross barriers for the sake of others so that they might hear the gospel of Christ and therefore have life and life abundant, life to the fullest. He would have accepted them if they came to him on his own terms, though, wouldn't he? The second thing that we see, right? So let's say that we are willing to cross barriers for the sake of others, right? And we cross that barrier and we find ourselves in this new place out of our comfort zone and somebody else's. What is the next thing that we do? The second thing that we see is that the gospel calls us to deny ourselves for the sake of others, right? So once we have crossed the border, the next step is that we would be, as Acts chapter 1 says, witnesses. Now the Greek word for witnesses in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. The Greek word is this. What does that word remind you of? Martyr, right? What are martyrs? They are people who died for the faith. How do we witness, right? What does it mean when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses? What he means, both figuratively and, by the way, literally for the 11 men he was talking to, you will die so that other people can see Christ raised up. You will die so that other people might hear the gospel message. Ten out of the eleven after Judas, right? Ten after the eleven apostles died, and the eleventh is John, and they tried to kill him for preaching the gospel. There's this really um, beautiful uh, imagery, yet again from Galatians, that Paul writes. (coughs) He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me, right? Witnessing. This is witnessing to Christ. The life I now live in the body I live in uh, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, when we read this declaration of Paul, we tend to think about it vertically, right? We tend to think to myself, I need to die to myself so I might live a holy life pleasing to God. But that totally denies and looks over the horizontal implications of our faith, right? Think about the language. He says, um, Christ, who died for me, who loved me and gave himself for me, right? What would it look like for us to die like Christ died? It's to die for others. So the question I think that we have to ask ourselves is what would it look like for me and you to die for others so that they might see Christ? Like, think about some of your friends on campus and your class 
in your dorm, in your sorority, in your fraternity. Think about the people on campus you interact with every day. The question you need to be asking yourself is what would it look like for you to crucify yourself in their life so that they might see and come to know Jesus Christ? Often when I talk to students about this, you know, this idea of talking to others about their faith, one of the first things that comes up is, well, I just don't know enough, or I don't feel confident enough to, to talk to other people about the Christian. Like, I'm not worthy to do this. I don't know enough. You know, like, let's leave that to the professionals, right? But the problem with that is this. Arguments don't change people. Information does not intrinsically cause transformation of the heart. My sister um, is, uh, got her PhD in philosophy from Brown University, um, and she is the smartest person I know. Um, and I was talking to her about this idea. Uh, she's now a professor. Uh, she's married to a Canadian, and they moved to Canada, and they're, they're both professors um, at a school in Montreal. Um, and so this is someone who has literally studied what it means to argue, all right? And that's what you, it's part of what you're doing in philosophy, is learning how to articulate your view well. And she said this. She says, people, arguments don't change people. People change people. What does it look like for you to die to yourself inside of somebody else's life so that they might see Christ? And then finally, the third thing we see, right? The third thing that we see is that the gospel calls us to bless those who hate us and to bless those who take advantage of us. When crossing borders and boundaries, you're bound to face opposition, right? Whether that be genuine hate or, or just kind of some general confusion. And when you deny yourself for the sake of others, just as Christ did, you are bound to be taken advantage of, okay? You will be taken advantage of, just as Christ was. And so we must see that the gospel calls us to bless those who hate us and those who take advantage of us. In Acts 1, Jesus asked his disciples to deny themselves on behalf of Samaritans, whom the Jews hated. And who hated the Jews. He asked the disciples to deny themselves, to be martyrs for the sake of their very oppressors in Rome. After Paul, in Romans chapter 12, writes those, that two-word sentence, practice hospitality, chase after love of stranger, he goes on to write these words. He says, bless those who persecute you, right? As you chase after love of stranger, something is bound to go wrong, right? The first words after his mouth, after chase after love of stranger is, by the way, if you're going to chase after love of stranger, get used to blessing those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And live in harmony with one another. In other words, you're just going to have to bring peace because peace is not going to happen as you get out of your comfort zones and you cross barriers for the sake of the gospel. You're going to have to crucify your pride. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate people. And if you're Peter hearing this, you get a little offended. But be willing to be associated with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. When you cross barriers and get out of your comfort zones, people will not respond in ways that you expect, in ways that you desire. 
but do not repay anyone evil for evil, but rather be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this is where it gets really important. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing these things, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so let me just leave you with this one thought, okay? What Paul is asking us to do as we chase after love a stranger, as we get out of our comfort zones and cross barriers for the sake of the gospel, as uh, we, we meet people on their own terms and crucify ourselves inside of their lives so that they might know Christ. You don't have to trust yourself, okay? You don't have to trust yourself. You're not going to do everything right. And you don't have to trust them to have the right response. That's why he says, don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine. In other words, you don't have to control their response. You be faithful to the task and allow the judgment to be God's. Why, when, when, when God says, don't judge others, it's not because they won't be judged. When you are wronged by someone and you want that justice, God says, don't take it. Why? Because you are not a good judge of what deserves justice and not. You are not a good judge of what deserves vengeance or not, but God is. So you don't have to trust yourself. You're not going to be perfect, nor are they going to be perfect. You don't have to trust them, right? As you think about one of your friends who may, maybe doesn't know Christ, and you think about how you might crucify yourself inside of their life so that they might see Christ, and then you begin to imagine all the ways that could go wrong, all the wrong ways they could respond to that. Paul's saying, as you chase after love a stranger, Something's going to go wrong, but you just default to being peaceful. You default to giving them shalom. You feed them when they're thirsty, and you feed them when they're hungry. You get to default because God will judge. And so as you break off into groups tonight, what I want you to do I want you to answer these three questions. I get into groups of about three to five. If it's bigger than that, that's fine. But honestly, the, the smaller the group, the shorter your conversation will be. So uh, just keep that in mind. But here's the three questions I want you to engage in. The first is, how might God be calling you to get out of your comfort zone? Secondly, what would it look like for you to crucify yourself in the life of others? And then thirdly, what keeps you from trusting God so that you can live into your, to the answers of the first two questions?